In its latest look at how the State Department manages itself, the Government Accountability Office found state has made a lot of progress against a long list of recommendations. But a few biggies, like embassy construction and cybersecurity, still need some real attention. Joining me with the rundown, the GAO's Director of International Affairs and Trade Issues, Jason Baer. Jason, good to have you back. Hey, it's great to talk to you, Tom. And give us the big picture here. It turns out that State Department is a little ahead of the government as a whole in getting after the long list of issues that GAO regularly kind of bird dogs everybody on. Yeah, absolutely. So, as you might imagine, GAO makes hundreds of recommendations every year to federal agencies and departments. And we track those recommendations over the course of four years. And, uh, of course, we'd like all those recommendations to be implemented because we think they would improve the operations and efficiency of federal agencies. And what we found at the end of last year was when we look back over the last four years, government-wide, about 77% of our recommendations had been implemented. But when we did the calculation specifically for the State Department, like you said, they were just ahead of the game. About 79% of the recommendations we'd made four years ago had been implemented. All right, so they're a little bit ahead, but they do have some problems, areas that still need some attention. And you kind of divided them into six basic buckets. If you would, just run briefly through what each of those is. Yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear here, what we're talking about are the areas that we think are the highest priority. So we've got several dozen recommendations that are to the State Department for their implementation. But like you said, we really wanted to focus the attention of the senior levels of the department in six key areas. So the first is about security assistance vetting. The second is about improving the quality of the data that they put out on foreign assistance. The third is about improving the management of their workforce, which is a critical component of the State Department. Next, we talk about improving the transparency of their embassy construction planning process, as well as focusing on cybersecurity and making sure that they are addressing the variety of cybersecurity risks that are important. And then last but not least, they do need to do better at complying with some congressional reporting requirements. And that first one, improving the security assistance vetting process, that has to do with making sure that foreign aid administered through the State Department doesn't go to evildoers, basically, correct? As you know, we give billions of dollars in security assistance to foreign partners all across the globe. And the issue that we really honed in on several years ago was the need to have a global policy about making sure that we're vetting the forces who are getting equipment for us to make sure that they haven't committed human rights violations. Okay. And I wanted to zero in on cybersecurity. That seems to be the federal topic of the day. It's the one area where the new, for example, budget proposal from the Biden administration has a lot of detail because it's kind of vague in some other areas, but it's pretty clear about cybersecurity. What is State Department's bouquet of issues that they need to deal with with respect to cyber? Yeah. So, Tom, you're totally right. I mean, this is kind of the issue of the day. And and frankly, it's not just a federal issue. It's a private sector individuals, federal government, and especially the State Department face a whole variety of cybersecurity threats. And we're on record as saying the entire government really needs to have an implemented national cybersecurity strategy. With specific regard to the State Department, we've honed in on three specific areas. The first is really focused on kind of a workforce issue, because as much as we think about cybersecurity as a technical capabilities issue, there's a really critical human capital component, too. And we think they need to have the data and information available to them about what their cybersecurity workforce looks like so that they can identify gaps and make sure that they're putting in place the workforce that they need. The second is doing a better job of integrating 
enterprise risk management, which is kind of the broad look at what's the set of risks that an agency faces into the cybersecurity risks and getting those cybersecurity risks documented as an important part of that process. Because, of course, we all clearly see that when you have a cybersecurity incident, it can impact your ability to perform your mission. The third and probably most recent area that we've honed in on here is the State Department understands and acknowledges that moving forward, it's going to be important to have international norms on things like cybersecurity and emerging technologies. And so they embarked on a plan to develop a brand new bureau within the State Department that would focus on those issues. And while they do coordinate with other agency partners on these issues, what we found was that they didn't do a good job of engaging with those partners, whether they be in the law enforcement community or on the technical side of things, to make sure that they got their input on what this new bureau needed to have in terms of capabilities and how they needed to be organized. And without doing that, they did put themselves at risk for unnecessary duplication or fragmentation potentially of work. And did they generally agree with you on those points? So on two of those three, the first two I mentioned, they did agree. They actually disagreed with our recommendation. They needed to do a better job of engaging with their stakeholders. I will say we made that almost a year ago during the previous administration. So we are in ongoing conversations with the current administration about their posture and their particular approach to handling this set of issues, and we'll continue to monitor that. We're speaking with Jason Baer, Director of International Affairs and Trade Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And briefly, the issue of overseas embassy construction transparency. The State Department, as I understand it, is about halfway through its 20- or 25-year process for replacing most of the embassies around the world. What are the big issues there? Great question, and you're right. You know, following the bombings in uh, Kenya and Tanzania uh, in the late 90s, the State Department embarked on a really large program to replace a number of embassies to improve their security efficiency and a whole variety of other things. What we've honed in on here is a part of the planning process that we think is really important because it is, one, a significant amount of money, and two, as you already pointed out, is going to take a long time. It's important for them to factor in the impact of inflation. Because we are looking at long time frames, the impact of inflation is magnified over time. They need to make sure that they're factoring in inflation for not only their cost estimates, but what impact it's going to have on their time frames. And they need to be transparent about that in their budget requests and the information that they provide to other stakeholders. And they agree with you on that one, too? Yes, they're in the process of developing that in their FY21 budget. I haven't looked at the FY22 one yet, but in their FY21 budget, they did at least factor it into the numbers, but we think they need to do some increased transparency about how that works. And we should point out they have built some really great new embassies in the last few years. Yeah, some of the embassy architecture really is, frankly, award-winning. And as they're moving people into more secure facilities, that is an important part of what they're trying to do here. So that's all really, really great progress. And there is a lot in your report, but I did want to make sure we talked about improving workforce management because ultimately that's what everything is all about in some sense. And what are the main recommendations or the open issues with respect to how state does manage its workforce? Yeah, you're right. And in many ways, the State Department workforce is incredibly talented and they are quite literally representing the United States to the rest of the world. So we think it is critically important to pay attention to those issues. We have a couple of issues that are related to hardship pay. So as you might imagine, you know, there are U.S. diplomats posted abroad who, you know, get additional pay for serving in places like Iraq or Afghanistan where their physical security is in danger. 
But there are diplomats in a lot of other countries posted around the world that get hardship pay, you know, because of environmental pollution or a lack of access to high-quality medical care, things like that. And so the State Department spends $100 million or more on those hardship pay allowances. And we think they need to do a better job kind of just staying on top of those, making sure that they're starting them and stopping them at the appropriate times. But I think the second area that we've really honed in on in the last year and a half with regard to workforce management is diversity. This is a long-standing issue at the State Department, and frankly, we were on record in the 1980s identifying some of the issues related especially to the senior levels at the State Department and the lack of diversity there. In our most recent report, we identified issues related to promotions. There were disparate impacts on promotions based on certain racial or ethnic groups. And so what we've really recommended is that the State Department do more work to try to get at identifying barriers to equal opportunity in their workforce. And what we're really trying to do is get them to understand what are the root causes here, because understanding the root causes is critically important to coming up with long-term durable solutions. You might be able to come up with an idea which sounds really good, but if it's not attacking the root cause of the issue, you're probably not going to have a long-term impact on it. And so that's what we're encouraging the State Department to do. And frankly, we're encouraged by the things, you know, frankly, from the secretary on down that we've heard over the last six months in terms of their personal commitment to these things, as evidenced by the fact that for the first time ever, the State Department has a chief diversity officer. So we're on, in ongoing conversations with them about that. We're continuing to monitor it, and they seem like they're on the right path. Jason Baer is Director of International Affairs and Trade Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's great to talk. We'll post this interview along with a link to his latest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, 
uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership 
was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, 
Take good care. If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, you are going to love Viator. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. And for me, Sun Valley skiing is huge on my bucket list. So I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom! Custom ski and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to our condo. Pretty unbelievable. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.